Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? <laughs> Plugging right away, right along. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7 of that seven-verse uh, passage there that has to do with should I marry or remain single? That's the title, should I marry or remain single? If there's one thing I'm learning about a congregation, our congregation, <laughs> I'm learning it in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. And that is this. <laughs> I need to help you. I need to chide you a little bit, carefully and lovingly. Listen to what is being said out of the context of 1 Corinthians 7. I noticed from last week's message, <laughs> I love what Bill Stafford says, and he's with us today. Bill says, I've had a lot of good messages messed up by poor hearers. <laughs> you, you talk about anointed preaching, folks. We've got to have anointed hearing. That's what we pray for every Sunday. Unless you're hearing it from the context, you're not getting what Paul is saying. Now, understand what I'm saying. What many of you are doing without realizing it, because I've talked with you. You're hearing 1 Corinthians 7 out of either a personal experience or an experience you know about. And you're trying to fit one into the other without actually hearing what 1 Corinthians 7 is really saying. If you want a complete teaching on marriage, a teaching that tells the man how he's supposed to love his wife and set up that attitude in the family and how he's supposed to sanctify her by his life. If you want something like that and the role of the woman of submissiveness to the husband, if you want a complete teaching on marriage, you will not find it in 1 Corinthians 7. Write this down to understand. You will not find it in 1 Corinthians 7. That is not what Paul is doing here. You will find it in Ephesians chapter 5 if that's what you're looking for. And it'll cover all the bases. This will not cover all the bases. You must hear out of the context of what's being said. We're dealing with questions that were written to the Apostle Paul that specifically dealt with moral purity. That's what it dealt with. And we don't have those questions, so that's what makes it difficult. We have the answers. We don't have the questions. The church at Corinth had a perverted view of sex, even in marriage. They equated sexual intimacy in marriage with immorality that they were accustomed to in their culture. And as verse 5 says, they were weak in their flesh when it came to regards to temptation to immorality that was around them. It appears in the statement found in verse 1, that they may have been saying this themselves. Now, Paul says it, but it, he could be picking up on a phrase they might have brought into their questions towards him. When he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That could have come from a conclusion 
they had already come to, but a wrong conclusion. Paul may have been quoting the statement, and when he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but his point is that not touching a woman is only true outside a marriage relationship. And Paul is trying to make a distinction here. It is not immoral to touch one's spouse. We saw how the word touch now is a specific word. It is a word that has sexual innuendo to it. It's more than just a touch. I mean, it's a hug, as we've said, and there's a hug. I believe it was one of the speakers that came here once, I can't remember who it was, said, you know how the difference is between a kiss and a kiss? About two minutes. So there's a difference here in a touch and a touch, <laughs> what we're talking about. The kind of touching Paul is talking about is the kind of touching that has sexual innuendo behind it. The kind of touching that is only permitted in the marriage relationship. And there's a difference between the immoralities of the culture and sexual intimacy within marriage. And they had not defined it. The church at Corinth had not defined it. And that was part of their dilemma and part of what Paul is trying to solve for them. It says in verse 2 of chapter 7, but because of immoralities. We've got to draw a line here and say immoralities is over here. Let me explain it to you. But over here, sexual intimacy in marriage has nothing to do with this over here. This is what God designed and what God blesses. This is a perversion of everything that God intends. Their conclusion seemed to have been that sex, just a word, and some of you are uncomfortable by my saying it even in this auditorium. The same thing goes on today as it went on then. That, that sex was wrong, so wrong, that it was even wrong in marriage. And if you're single, stay single. If you're married, refrain. That's what that kind of had come up. Paul's trying to correct a bad situation here. He's refuting that whole thought process. Sex in marriage is wonderful. It's a protective thing. It's a blessed thing. It's an ordained of God thing. If it's done God's way. And what is God's way? Well, it must be based on mutual love. In verse 2, he says, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, his own health too. It's the word that means consider her as part of yourself. And let each woman have her own husband, idios, her very own, personal, private husband, the one, the only man that can ever meet the needs of her life. And she lets him know that. And he lets her know by the tenderness of his life and his attitude that she's part of himself. Must be based on mutual respect in verse 3. It says, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife. And of course, the King James adds the word with benevolence. And I think that's a good addition there. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The word benevolence has the idea of the attitude behind all this. It's a totally goodwill attitude. But each owes a debt to the other. Each owes a debt to the other. And so they're never thinking of themselves. They're thinking of a debt they owe to the other in a righteous way and in a way that's conditioned by the due benevolence, the goodwill of, of the heart. And then it also must be based upon mutual selflessness. In verse 4, he says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Even to the point of surrendering the rights to your own bodies. But all of this is done with that attitude of goodwill, that attitude of selflessness, that attitude of mutual respect and love, all of that is built into what Paul is saying here. And then he says in verse 5, which tripped a lot of us up last week, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, he says. Lest Satan tempt you 
because of your lack of self-control. Now this points to a problem that must have been going on there because he uses the present tense. And he says, stop depriving. In other words, uh, they were doing something on a continual basis. And they were depriving one another. Why would they do that in a sexual context? Why would a husband deprive a wife? Why would a wife deprive her husband? Well, in the context, evidently because of their perverted view of what sex was all about to begin with. They saw it as sinful. And Paul says to stop depriving each other. Paul shows that our flesh is weak. And what they were doing by depriving one another was ending up and pushing the other toward the temptation to immorality that was all around them. Whereas in the marriage bond, if done God's way, it is a protective thing within itself. It protects you from all this garbage out here. But when it's not done that way, it tends to push one toward that. Now this is where everybody checked out. Because it sounded like I was saying that I just gave an excuse for some husband to commit immorality because he could say his wife is depriving him. Now why would I say his wife is depriving him? I've never known too many men that told their wife to sleep on the couch. Maybe you do. Give me the names after the service. I'd like to know who they are. But I know a lot of women who told their husbands to sleep on the couch. It usually works that way. Not many men deprive their wife. Most of the time it works the other way. Not all the time. There's an exception to every rule. And so all of a sudden, because they fell upon a woman, I don't know why it is, but in our society today, if you even mention that, everybody just goes berserk. Oh, no, he hates women. That was women's fault. That's not what I'm saying. What I was simply saying was that if that old boy has immorality and, and temptations towards that, you're not helping him out any when you deprive him because what it's doing is it kind of pushes him that way. However, that in no way justifies the man committing immorality. If you can see the balance here. Paul is just simply saying you're, you're, you're doing it backwards. You're working against yourself if you're doing this kind of thing. If you've got this problem out here and, and God has a design here and you won't do it God's way here, you might be forcing him right out there, see. That's what he's saying. And you see, I want to tell you something. If any man's here and you've committed immorality and you're blaming your wife for depriving you and that's what caused you to go and do that, that's the most pitiful excuse known to man that you just gave. And it won't hold water in the court of God. Because every man, every woman that's a Christian is responsible to God for their own choices and their own actions. And we can't blame anybody or any circumstance. Now if you read that into what we said last week, let's come back to 1 Corinthians 7 and understand what 1 Corinthians 7 is saying. It in no way justifies immorality because of deprivation of a sexual relationship in marriage. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying if you go against the design, you're not helping the situation any. If he's prone to that and your flesh is weak, it's not helping it. However, it doesn't justify his actions if he chooses to do that. Well, the context is that marriage done God's way protects the married couple from immorality. You can have victory over the temptations of the world within the proper design that God has for sexual intimacy within marriage. Sex and marriage is to be entered into with, by, with mutuality and also selflessly, mutually and selflessly as we enter into it. And I heard, sometimes I hear the statement, well, yeah, but the men today, you just don't, God when he wrote this didn't know how wicked some of these men can be, the women are saying. You're telling me God didn't know? Are you telling me that the culture of Corinth 
was, was better than the culture of today? <laughs> you haven't studied Corinth yet, folks. You go back and study. When I was there in Corinth in June, there's a museum that they have of all the artifacts of that place, of things they have discovered, and they won't even let you in one part of it because they say it's too embarrassing for the culture of the 20th century to walk inside and find what they have found in Corinth. And you're telling me God wasn't aware of how evil men can be? And this was written during that kind of time. So listen to what the 1 Corinthians 7 is saying. If you want a complete teaching on marriage, go to Ephesians 5, but hear it out of its context. They had a problem, moral purity, and they had perverted their idea of sex, carried it into marriage, and Paul is trying to put the right back where it belongs. And marriage is proper. Marriage is ordained. Marriage is blessed. Marriage is, a def it is protection even if done properly against the immorality and the temptations of the world. Well, we come to verse 6 and 7 this morning, and we're going to Two things I want to show you. Let's read the verses together. Verse 6 and verse 7 says, But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. You say, now Wayne, how in the world are you going to get a message out of those two verses? <laughs> well, you pray. I think I, I think I have. I hope I get it out. <laughs> First of all, I think what he's saying here is, Marriage is not a command. Now, if you're in Corinth, Paul has just put marriage back where it ought to be. All of a sudden, you find it's a protective thing. So the single person says, whoa, the best thing for me to do is get married. And Paul says, well, now, wait a minute. Well, I'm not saying it's a command to get married. I'm just putting marriage up where God has it to make sure you know it's honorable and, and the bedroom is sanctified and blessed and ordained by God. But look what he says. Verse 6 is an interesting verse. The King James translates it, a word here, differently than New American Standard. And it gives you two different thoughts towards the verse. King James says, this is what I say to you by way of permission. New American Standard says, I say this by way of concession. Now that's an interesting thought here. If you use the word permission, then Paul would probably be saying, I want to ask your forgiveness for even indulging in these kinds of matters. And if that's what he's saying, I fully agree with him because I feel the same way trying to preach it. He must have felt that way writing it. I mean, I don't dictate what the next verse is. We just have to go through it that way. And so he would be saying, I, I, I'm saying this. I'm not commanding you anything. This is, this is apostolic advice. Every bit of that I agree with. However, by translating it concession, there is another thought that comes to this thing because of the word that is used there. He says, but this I say by way of concession. The word by way of is kata. Kata also means according to to the measure of something. He, and the word concession is the word signomi. Signomi is only used right here, one time in the whole New Testament found right here. That's why it's a little difficult to translate. You have nothing else to rest upon here other than the word itself. It is formed from a combination of two words. The little Greek word seen, which means together with, and the word gnome, G-N-O-M-E, which means opinion, uh, sentiment, will, awareness of something. Now, the word nome is found several times. The second word that's in this two-part word here, the, the second part of it is found several times in the New Testament. And since we don't have the whole word, at least we can get some idea from this one. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 where it signifies a common agreement. When two people come together and concede on a common agreement. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. 
He says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, that's the word right there, and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the judgment, or the same mind in the same judgment. That's the way it's translated in NASB. Look over in chapter 7, the chapter we're in, but in verse 25, it's used again. And here, and several other places, it's used as opinion, opinion, someone's opinion. In chapter 7, verse 25, 1 Corinthians. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. And then again in verse 40 of chapter 7, he says, but in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. I think that also, I also have the spirit of God. I think I also have the spirit of God. In other words, I'm telling you this because I also have the spirit of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 10, again, it's rendered as opinion in the New American Standard translation, but it's the same word, gnome. It says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 8, and I give you my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. So that, that, that opinion is used several times in the Corinthian writings. But then we turn to Philemon chapter 1, verse 14. Of course, there's only one chapter. <laughs> Philemon chapter 1, verse 14. I was one day working on my computer trying to find something in Philemon or Jude. And I put down, I didn't put the chapter, I just put the verse because there's only one chapter. And I couldn't get it. And I worked and worked and worked and worked until I put one down, it wouldn't work. So... I guess that's why I have it down. Philemon, verse 14. He says, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything. And the word consent is the word translated from that little word, gnome, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. And then two times in Revelation, you don't have to turn there, Revelation 17, 13, and then 17, it's translated as purpose. And so we see the word then. It's translated as opinion. It's translated as, as a concession between some. It's translated as purpose. And even from the context, you can get that understanding. But the word signomi, when you put that little prefix in front of it, to me means to think the same thing as somebody else. To have a joint opinion, same opinion as somebody else had. To have a common mind, a purpose, an understanding. To share in a common awareness. And perhaps that's why the New American Standard translated concession. And if you look at it from that angle, look in the context of verses 1 through 5, it makes so much sense. He says, I speak this according to a common opinion, a common awareness. Now, what would they be commonly aware of? First of all, that marriage is God's design. They may have been messed up on what goes on in the bedroom, but they all knew that marriage was God's design. But not only that, they all knew that they were weak in the flesh in verse 5. And so there's a common opinion and a common awareness here that marriage is God's purpose. Marriage is God's design. But then he goes on. But even though marriage is God's design and we're all commonly aware of that, marriage is not a command. In other words, God doesn't command you to get married, but marriage is God's design. He goes on to say in verse 6, but I say this by way of concession, not of command. Now, he's put marriage back into priority to where it ought to be. Should I remain single or marry? Seems to be a problem. They were a question they were asking because of all the perversion around them. And he puts marriage back where it ought to be. And it's a common agreement. Everybody's aware of the fact. All of us share the same opinion that marriage is correct. So in answer to the question, should I marry or remain single, Paul would say, it's not a command to be married 
And the key here is that you do whatever it is that God leads you to do. It's not a matter of this or that. It's a matter of God, what do you want for my life? You're not commanded to be married. You're not commanded to be single. So whatever God leads you to, that's what is the lot he has for you in your life. Marriage is not a command. Marriage is his design, but marriage is not a command. A person who is single can live a very fulfilled life if this is God's direction for him. Now, by fulfilled in the context, he can live in victory over immoral temptations being single every day of his life. Just like the married person in the context proper of marriage lives in the same victory, a single person can live the same way. So it's never an escape from a lifestyle. It's never an escape to getting married. It's not a command. But what I believe he's saying here is that, that it's common opinion. We're all aware of that marriage is God's idea. But it's not a command for each and every individual. I wonder if there are any singles here this morning that might be bitter because they're not married like others are married. Maybe you're single again, and that could be a problem. And you've forgotten the sovereignty of God. He either causes it or allows it in your life. And whatever God causes or allows, He still is the answer to whatever dilemma we find ourselves in. And if you're single this morning, you can live a fulfilled life. You can live in joy. You can live in victory over the temptation to immorality. You can live that way if you'll do it God's way in the grace that God gives to you. And that leads us right in to our next point. So the first point to me in this passage, certainly open to debate because there are two translations and two ways of approaching it. But the, the first point to me is marriage is not a command. But the second point we come to is this, and I think this is without question. Marriage or singleness, whatever place you find yourself this morning, is a gift from God. You ever seen it as a gift from God? You ever thanked him for it? You know, it's amazing to me how many times we're in situations that we fight against and we've never stopped to thank him for it. It says that we can thank him for our circumstances. It says we're to thank him in our circumstances because Christ is the one who ordains it. Christ is the one who enables us in the midst of it. And so to me, what he's saying here, marriage or singleness is a gift from God. Look at verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. <laughs> the phrase, yet I wish that all men were, were even as I myself am, could cause you to jump to the conclusion I have for years. And that conclusion is Paul is saying, I wish every one of you, each and every one of you, by the way, all of you were single like I am single. That's what you're led to if you just jump into it real quickly without even giving any other thought. And you can understand why he'd say that. Paul traveled all the time. He was a missionary. He said, man, I'm not tied to a home responsibility. I'm set free. I, I can do, do what I want to do. And I wished all of you were like I am. Well, no home responsibilities. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's for certain he was single. Little doubt about that. It says in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain, how? Even as I. So he's talking about singleness there. He said, I'm single, and I, I suggest that some of you that are unmarried, it's, it's good for you to remain, even as I. But how could, could he be saying something else different here? That's what I want you to see this morning. Is he saying, I want everybody 
to be single like me. That's what I already wish. If I had my desire, God, if I could, if I could have my desire, I want everybody to be single just like me. Well, I don't think so. And I want to share a different thought about that this morning. Could he be saying something else? Without question, without any question whatsoever, when you examine the life of the Apostle Paul, being single or being married was never a focus to him. Never. Never. You'll never find him, oh, I'm in a straight between two things of whether or not to be single or whether or not to be married. Oh, I'm distressed. He didn't say that. <laughs> His only straight was that he didn't, didn't, didn't know whether to die or go on to be with Jesus or have to stay there and put up with them. And that's, that's one of the biggest problems that he had. That wasn't his focus. He doesn't get before God and say, oh, God, I want to experience the power of your resurrection in marriage. <laughs> I want to experience your, your, your life and your, and your person. And he didn't say any of that. That's not his focus. Being single or being married is not his focus. You say, okay, if it wasn't, what was it? And this is what I think he's saying. If everybody would live like me with the focus that I have, whether you're single or whether you're married, you can live in all the joy and fulfillment that Christ can offer to you. But living other ways, if you put your focus on being married or focus on being single, you have taken your focus off the main purpose of life, which is what he had, which is what he desired for others. What? was that focus. Look over in chapter 3 of Philippians in verse 9. We're going to look at several verses here and you'll also think of others that we didn't mention. Philippians chapter 3 in verse 9. What was the focus of the Apostle Paul? In verse 9 of Philippians chapter 3 it says that he, he it talks about his main desire. It says in verse 9 that his desire was to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. And boy, that's a powerful statement for a man who lived that way all of his life. Earlier in the chapter, it describes that. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10 says, as he continues, that I may know him, that I may know him. That means experientially to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He said, that's all I want. That's all I want. I don't want a righteousness that they give me a church of seven things I can do to be spiritual. I've had that. All I want is the true righteousness which comes only by faith and surrender to Christ. And all I want to do in my whole life is to experience him, to know the power of his resurrection being conformed unto his death. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. You know what a bondservant was? A bondservant was one who had given up his will and taken the will of his master. He's one who has no rights. He's one who has no possessions. He doesn't want it. All he wants to do is the bidding of his master. And being a bondservant means a love slave. He chooses to be that. That's the focus of his life. It says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, here he is in prison the Jews had trumped up the charge against him. The Romans now had him in custody. And he says in, in Ephesians 3.1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. <laughs> I'm not the prisoner of the Jews and I'm not the prisoner of, the Ro of Rome. I've chained myself to Jesus. And when I'm chained to him, then I'm always led to be a victor in whatever circumstance I may find myself. And it says in 1 Corinthians 
that we've been studying. We've already studied this in chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, but to me, here's the motivation of his heart. To me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you, talking to the congregation at Corinth, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. I'm not declared righteous by this. What you say about me and what I say about me, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Now that's the focus of Paul's life. Married, single, doesn't matter. His focus was, God, when you examine me, will you prove me righteous? Because what people say about me, what I say about me can differ from what you think about me. You know, Paul wanted people to imitate him, but we have to be careful with that. You don't go around imitating Paul, but you imitate his faith. And he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me, he says, just as I also am of Christ. So Paul lived his life to please God, only to please God, and to be approved of God in the sense of that which he does, that the works would have God's touch upon him that he might experience the Lord Jesus daily in his life, the resurrected power of Christ, whether I'm single or whether married. Now he says, I wish that all of you were like I am. Now if you're single and you're in Corinth and you don't know whether to get married or not, or if you're married and don't know whether or not the bedroom is okay or not, Paul says, push that aside and let God be the focus of your life and he'll work the other things out. You can live in the sufficiency of who he is then, whether single or whether married. Now Paul knew he had every right to marry. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the believers of the Lord? In Cephas, Simon Peter was married. There was no question of whether or not he could have stopped at any given time and married. That was never his agenda. He knew he had the right to do it. But see, his life's focus was not whether or not he needed to be married. His life's focus was as he says in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it appears to me that he's not saying, I wish you were all single. First of all, to me, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Here's the Apostle Paul who preaches the counsel of the Word of God. Now he's single. <laughs> and then he would say, that he, the word fellow is used there too, which I not only wish, man, this is a strong, intense desire that if I could, I'd take part in seeing it happen. That everybody was like I am. That would be real good for the human race, wouldn't it? If everybody was single. <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. That, that to me, that doesn't fit anymore. It's, it, it's funny how you think of a thing for a long time, you back off and rethink it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, even to the context. I think what it means, what makes sense is, if you would live as I seek to live in verse 2 through 9 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, attached to Christ, Vessels through which Christ can work, not attached to men and every other thing, then you would have the fulfillment that I enjoy. And therefore, whether you're single or you're married, it'll be all right. Because your joy is not in being single and your joy is not in being married. Your joy is in Jesus. I never will forget, Diana told me this years ago, and it kind of took me a while. It kind of hurt my feelings at first. But she said for years in her life, she just knew that she'd be happy if she could just find a husband. And God dropped me in her life. We're talking about a grenade coming right into your room, you know. God dropped me into her life. And we got married. <laughs> and then she discovered something. It didn't take her long. That finding the right person wasn't going to make her happy. And then she said, well, if I can have children, that will make me happy. And we had children. And she discovered very quickly <laughs> that, yes, they're wonderful and they're lovely. 
but they come out in a package that's not been wrapped. I mean, it's like it takes a while to get used to it. She found out that didn't make her happy. And one day down in Mississippi, she came to me, and we'd been in the ministry for years, and she said, Wayne, I'm not saved. And I said, now, Diana, of anybody I know, you've got to be saved. I tried to talk her into it. She said, just be quiet. You always got your foot in your mouth. Just be quiet. Let me tell you why I think I'm not. And I said, why? She said, I have never seen myself as being unrighteous, ever, ever. And I backed off big time. I said, do what? Fred Wolf from Cottage Hill Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama was preaching a meeting in our church that week. And he was just drawing circles on a board trying to show what a person is and who is Christ in his life. And Dinah, by those circles, listening to Fred, got convicted. And that night she bowed on her knees and received Jesus into her life. And she said, now I know what I was lacking all that time. My joy is not in you, Wayne. Sorry, like you. My joy is not in, in you, Stephanie and Stephen, and even in little Holland. My joy is in Jesus. And that's what Paul to me is saying. If you'll live like I live and let Jesus be your joy, it doesn't matter if you're single. It doesn't matter if you're married. That joy overflows and causes you to walk in the victory Jesus said you have over the temptations of your flesh. I wish all men were as I am, Paul says. You know, the problem with most of us is if something happens in our marriage, just thank God I hadn't had to go through that, but in case you have, the first thing you think of is a quick fix. I think I'll get married again. Who, who, who is it now I need to be married to? And I, I, that to me is why Paul is not saying, I wish you all were single, because singleness doesn't solve your problem. Jesus solves your problem. Well, sexual purity would never be a problem if we lived as Paul lived, with our focus being Christ. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. It is God's grace that enables them both. Look at verse 7 again. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, he says, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And the word for gift there is the word charisma. Charisma, it has that little word ma on the end of it, and it means not just the attitude by which the, great, the gift is given, which is absolutely without any deserving on our part, but it has to do with the gift itself, the actual gift itself. What is God given? Context is clear. Context is are you single or are you married? Now we know that grace is not only a gift, as I said, the gift, but it's more than that. And we know this. How do we know this? Because we studied Romans together, if you were with me. Grace is not just the gift itself or the attitude by which the, great, the gift was given, but grace also incorporates the enabling power of God to see that gift worked out. In other words, what God gives, God provides for so that it can be what he wants it to be. So grace is the transforming, enabling power that God has. That's what grace is. And that grace goes with whatever God gives. And if you're married, God gives the grace, the enabling power. If you're single, God gives the grace, the enabling power. It's interesting to me that when you study 1 Corinthians, you only think of gifts in chapters 12 through 14. Everybody does. <laughs> but gifts, anything we have as believers is a gift from God, undeserved, a gift of grace from God. And you have to look at it all. Remember back in chapter 4 and verse 7, we read this and studied it. For who regards you as superior or as differing from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? <laughs> You receive gifts. And he says, what do you have as believers that you didn't receive? It's all a gift. It's all a grace. And so the context here 
shows us that if you have the gift of being married and you're married and God's given you that as a situation or as God has given you a, a lifetime of singleness or whatever, that's fine. With the gift goes the enablement to bear up in that, in that particular situation. The context where the Corinthians were weak in their flesh regarding the temptation of sexual immorality, Paul is desiring that they experience God's enabling grace to overcome the temptation. I like another phrase he uses here in verse 7. He says, each man, heskatos. It means each man. <laughs> but it each, means each man separate and apart from the next man. That's very important. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 13, we saw the same thing. When we stand before God one day, we're not going to be in a group. We're going to be by ourselves. We know no man stands along with somebody else. You, so each man, individual, of his own, has received his own gift. The word idios is used for his own. And that's the word used back when it says the husband, the wife having her own husband, same word. Own particular, singular, that which God has given gift. Each man has his own specific gift that God has given. Tailor made for him and nobody else. And nobody else. And nobody else. So why do you pick up the phone and call your friend who doesn't understand the grace gift that God has given to you in the circumstances of your life? Because they're not in yours, they're in theirs. Why don't you run to the one who takes care of that whole thing? Why don't you run to the one who oversees it, allows it, causes it? He's the one who'll enable you in that. Man, we're all messed up. We always run to something. They don't know because it's tailor-made to you. You say, well, wow, you mean my dilemma? God's even allowed and understands what's good. Well, what does it say? And in that, he wants you to find him to be the fulfillment of your life. With the grace comes the enablement. There's something about grace I want to just hang on to for a second. Grace is color-coded. Did you know that? It's color-coded. Now, when you have something that's color-coded, that means if you have something blue, something blue goes with it. If you have something red, something red goes with it. If you have something yellow, something yellow goes with it. Grace is color-coded, which means it's very specific. I was thinking about color codes. I've shared this with you before, but it's been a while. When I worked for the telephone company for years in Virginia, uh, they were the ones who recommended that I go into the ministry. <laughs> After six months. And they put me on as a cable splicer's helper. And I was in Blacksburg, Virginia. <laughs> I personally blew out 12,000 phone lines. And that's when they said, you know what? We really think that God has not called you to this. He's called... He's not gifted you. There's no grace here. No, they didn't say it that way. But I was on a pole one night by myself, 11 to 7 shift. I love the 11 to 7 shift. I'd rather have that than any other shift. I like that. You go to breakfast at odd times. I mean, I went to lunch rather. But I was up on the pole by myself. And I had to put a splice together inside of a cable. And now they use different things. They had, we had the old metal spli uh, things then, but now they use different things. But here I was on a pole and the light was dim and the wind was blowing. It was raining outside and I couldn't really see real well. Orange and yellow looked awfully lot alike. And so I would just crimp those two together. <laughs> and I was crimping the wrong colors together, not realizing it. And that's what was blowing out all the phone lines in Blacksburg, Virginia. And I began to realize if something is yellow, it's tailor-made for something else that's yellow. They fit together. God's grace is color-colored. You say, where in the world you get that out of Scripture? Right? First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He's talking about gifts, too. He says that each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. As good stewards of the manifold, which means multicolored, color-coded, grace of God. Color-coded. Same word used in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. <laughs> I don't know why they put various and then whether they put manifold. 
Same word, color-coded trials. You mean to tell me, Brother Wayne, if I'm going through a trial right now in my marriage, God has gifted me in being in that trial? And you mean to tell me if that's a red trial, then God even has the red grace to enable me to go through what I need to go through? Yes, if your focus is what Paul's focus is. And if it's not, you're going to beat somebody to death trying to get the answer you're looking for. But if you'll come back and live as Paul lived, focused on Christ, then whether you're married or whether you're single, you'll discover that grace is not only the situation you're in and God gifted that to you, but not only that in the gift comes the enablement to bear up under whatever it is you have to bear up under. But it's only in Christ, not in your husband, wife, not in your circumstance. It's only in Christ. Paul knew the color-coded grace of God. And he now wishes for everyone else that they could live as he lives. He's the one who says over in Philippians chapter 3, or chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. Now that's a verse to go home and put on your refrigerator. Everybody else puts 413 on their refrigerator. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nobody ever pays any attention to it, but they stick it on their refrigerator to make them look spiritual. But if you'll put verse 11 on there, then put verse 13 on there, they'll make sense. Whatever circumstance I'm in, what is it? Married? Single? What is it? Paul says, I have learned to be content. You know what the word content is? Self-contained. What does that mean? It means that what I have within me, who I have within me, is all I need for that which is without me, around me. That's all I need is Jesus. I don't need one single thing. I don't need a wife, don't need a husband, don't need anything. I have what I need, and it's Christ. And if it's a marriage situation that's difficult, then let Christ be released in that marriage situation. Find out if he might get on the person who's around you, who's acting the wrong way. I wonder how many marriages that are breaking up have ever even given God a chance to see what he could do with it as opposed to what people can do with it. But if we live like Paul, we might see it a different way. If all men would live like Paul. Grace is tailor-made. Jesus said in Matthew 19, after telling them the only way to ever divorce is fornication, only. His disciples weren't real excited about that. And Jesus said, not all men can accept this statement but only those to whom it's been given. So if a single person is trying to figure that out, he can't. It wasn't given to him. It was given to the married. Then he goes on and talks about eunuchs in chapter 19. <laughs> it's interesting. And he says some of them have been gifted to be one, but, but not everybody can receive this, only the ones to whom it is given. So this morning, try, try, stop trying to figure somebody else's circumstance out. What is God saying to you? Then you can receive it by grace and God will enable you to be what he wants you to be whether you find yourself single or you find yourself married. Whatever God directs in your life, he'll give you the grace to bear up in a situation. It's amazing how many people have not chosen God's grace in their circumstance. Well, I got some more to say, but my time's out. You say, well, Wayne, this is Christmas time. Why do you talk about this? I'm going to tell you. I'm talking about it because it's in 1 Corinthians 7, and that's the way we're going through. But secondly, so that you can have the kind of Christmas you want to have. Because I guarantee you, if you're not living in the enabling grace of God, this coming Thursday will be absolutely the deadest, saddest, and most discouraging day you've ever lived in your life. But if you'll come back and live as Paul lived, under the grace enablement of God, knowing that whatever he's gifted to you, and it's all a gift. <laughs> you, don't make, you may think it's a booby prize, but it's a gift. 
in the gift comes the enabling power to bear up under it, to be what he says to be. And your joy is not in your circumstance. Your joy is in him. It's your choice. Heard the illustration years ago about these little kids. And they knew of a man who was supposed to be the wisest man in their area. He lived by himself. And they said he always had the right answer for everything. And one day they found a crippled bird. They said, you know what? It can still fly, but it's small enough we can catch it. And they caught it. And they said, let's go stump the old man. He's supposed to be so wise. So they put it in their hand. They walked up to him and said, old man, what do we have in our hand? He looked down for a second and thought for a while and finally a little flutter in the hand. He said, a bird. He said, well, old man, if you're so wise, is the bird alive or is the bird dead? And the old man being wise knew that if he said dead, they'd turn it loose. If he said alive, they'd crush it to prove him wrong. Instead of answering them, he said, it's whatever you choose for it to be. Now, when you walk out of here today, stop blaming somebody else. Start making choices like Paul made. Live as a bondservant. Live being judged of God, not by man. Live under the grace and experience him like Paul experienced him. And you're going to find, whether you're single, married, or whatever your circumstance is, you're going to have joy immeasurably, and it's going to flow out of you. And that's the witness of that we truly are saved. We really do have something to shout about. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 